talk about revolution That's going a little bit too far So love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal Is this going to get ridiculous? Absolutely. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Worst Wing. Here we are, uh, still in the beginning of season four, as we take a look back at Aaron Sorkin's seminal work, The West Wing, from a 2020 leftist perspective. I am Dave. And I am Stu. And we are here with what is now the third episode of season four, since the first two were technically two separate episodes as a two-parter. This one is entitled College Kids. um, Yeah. And refers both... (laughs) And refers both to the big uh, policy idea uh, that will be come up with by Toby and Josh in this episode, and also the actual college kids uh, that will be at a Rock the Vote event that uh, CJ and some of the other members of staff uh, end up attending later in the episode. But we will get to all that. Uh, First, we start off with In the Sit Room with uh, President Bartlett, Leo, Fitzwallis, and a couple other people. Um, as they're talking about the uh, Kumar blaming Israel for the Sharif assassination. <laughs> so we remarked on this last time very briefly, but it's basically just the White House getting thoroughly outfoxed in its attempts yes. to get rid of this guy because they had never even considered the fact that, oh, this this other sovereign nation that this guy is a representative of can play politics too? Are, yes. Are you sure? But I thought only the USA did things. Yeah, but we're the empire. They, they don't get to cheat. <laughs> yeah. That's not fair. Yeah. Nah, it's not fair. Yeah, Who's, who are you going to appeal to when the mods are you? Yeah. Um, so, so we get this great little interplay where they're like, okay, so, I mean, Kumar's calling our bluff here. And Leo's like, well, can't we just say that we know their evidence is phony? And Fitzwalls goes, God, no. If we do that, we have to admit why we know it's phony. And that, and that's the whole game right there. Um, Bartlett makes some dumb jokes about, oh, well, we should at least be in a street gang like West Side Story and learn how to dance and stuff. And Leo's like, uh, is now the time for jokes? And Bartlett's like, motherfucker, you talk me into killing this guy. I'll joke if I want to. <laughs> Which... It would be really funny if it was in like an HBO show where they were allowed to swear and Bartlett was yeah. a huge prude because I can see this interaction just being particularly comical if they were allowed to get like loosey-goosey Re- yeah. with it. Like, Leo, you told me to oh, fucking execute this guy. You're not going to let me joke. Yeah. <laughs> like, that'd be really good. Um but no, it's it's a lot more decorum based than that. But uh, so yeah, they they realize that Israel has effectively called their bluff, and so their their decision is to go get a lawyer to talk to, um, so that you know they can uh, they can figure out where to go from there. So that that will end up being Leo's plot line uh, throughout this episode. Uh, but in the meantime, the thing that the rest of our mains are are sort of focused on at first is. This idea that Stackhouse, uh, Senator Stackhouse, isn't he Ed Begley Jr.? He's the Bernie analog, right? Stackhouse? Yes, I believe he is. Yeah. He does the filibuster, or he's not Ed Begley Jr., but he, he is sort of the Bernie analog, or, or he he tries to keep Bartlett honest from the left. Yes. So yeah, he's, he's effectively our West Wing Bernie analog. Uh, he's trying to get into the debate, as well as a bunch of like third-party people are trying to get into the presidential debate. And they're they're doing a lawsuit, and uh, 
the all of our mains are so dismissive of it. They're like, oh, this happens every time. Don't worry. The judges never let these crazy third parties enter the debate. We're fine. We're fine. We're fine. Bruno, meanwhile, who, as we have remarked, is the most competent and capable of the entire bunch, uh, is correctly raising sort of the alarm of like, hey, guys, you really actually kind of need a plan for this. This seems concerning to me. And I've heard that the federal judge who's ruling on it is a little bit nutso uh, and might actually rule against you guys. And they're all just being completely dismissive of him until about midway through the episode when Leo comes in and tells everyone, uh, by the way, the ruling totally went against us. We're fucked. <laughs> yeah. And they have no, I mean, it's sort of like, it's immediately a scramble to, to mm-hmm. do whatever. And I think like, just, I guess now's a good time to talk about it. We were just talking about yes. where it's like, the, the perspective of the White House being this sort of consummately powerful institution comes up a lot in this show. And I guess for dramatic effect, it's good to have that because what happens is they have constructed this system of basically presumptive infallibility that completely falls apart anytime something goes wrong. Right. Anytime even the slightest thing goes wrong for them, like, for example, Kumar lying about <laughs> their, their assassination investigation. Yeah. Um, and then they have to come up with, as we will see, increasingly desperate plans to, uh, to come around that. And, like, even um, in this basic sort of framework of, oh, you know, this is always how it works. And then mm-hmm. they're like, well, well, well fuck, now well, what? what if... Yeah, but and and only Bruno was like, "Hey, but what if they don't rule your way this time? Like, should we at least think about that?" And then it was constantly told, "No, we shouldn't even think about it." And just sort of on a a more sort of meta part of this, like coming at it, you don't have to in order to, I guess, to to build out a more robust system that we're implying that maybe the White House should maybe have, considering they're all brain geniuses. It doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't have to be in a partisan lens. It doesn't have to be, I am preparing against Republicans. Like I am Mm -hmm. squaring off against an adversary here. It is just Mm -hmm. a question of building multiple pathways to viability for your ideas, I think, just very broadly. Just just being prepared, you know, like the Boy Scouts, be prepared, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Like, you know, you keep it simple. Just be prepared for multiple different outcomes including those that don't go your way and and have contingencies at least have thought of some contingencies and so the reason why to kind of drag this right back to why i started talking about this was like the they do this for dramatic effect like it's obvious because sure. it, because it drives sure. plot so lines. because it you know it's like our characters hubris you know they get caught with their pants down yeah it's a very good and dramatic moment however, when leo comes in and goes oh the rule yeah. <laughs> how however the people who have crafted their worldview and political perspective around this show have incorporated this sort of like high hubris thinking. hubristic yes. thinking exactly of we can do no wrong and everything is just going to go our way. Nothing but good times. And um, that's clearly never the case in the real world. Right. Even if you wanted to achieve legitimately right. good things, which often they it's, don't. It's not even the case in their fictional world where they have control of over <laughs> everything. Because as you say, they want the dramatic, you know, the, the dramatic impact of failure. 
Um, so it would be boring if our characters just succeeded all the time, for as much as I say that they never really get a big win. Uh, although we are coming up to our, our one and only really big win, which will be the election, but that's a few episodes down the line. I think, um, um, just to, I mean, honestly, if you don't mind going a little bit further on this topic, like, there's a real-world analog. I was going to, yeah. Real-world analog this week specifically, where... You have these Supreme Court rulings coming down. It's uh, July 2nd that we're recording this. And there have just been a couple mm-hmm. of Supreme Court rulings coming down. And I saw a tweet yes. that essentially said, like, people watching RBG dissent from the nominal liberal line and still lionizing her as a, you know, a powerhouse of the left while the right. Roberts Court just sort of carefully dismantles things. And the conservative side of things just are hooting and howling over any minor deviation from yes. their the line that they must tow speaks to right. why the court is now firmly in conservative hands and will right. inevitably be that way. Right, because they it, for them, any time the court even rules slightly against them, it's, oh my god, we gotta get these fucking judges out of there, and it's a rallying cry, and it drives every, all their voters to the poll, and then when the vote, you know, doesn't go the left's way, it's like, well, at least the notorious RBG fucking... Uh, we're we're, we're gonna get we're gonna get like she's great and like working out in the... And it's just, this thing is, it's all constructed around this idea that it's like, well, of course our... Of course, our grip on power is absolute. And, like, whatever mm-hmm. happens within that must be correct. Yes. Even though clearly it's not. Quite often. Right. <laughs> right. Um, what I like to, to wrap up this particular arc uh, of the episode is... So, their ruling goes against them, and it says basically any third party can now be in the debate. You know, Libertarian Party, the Green Party, you know, all even those wacko parties that have, like, 40 people in them. You know, they all have a chance in the debate now. And so their their actual response that they haven't planned, but what ends up being their response is, uh, wow, okay, so uh, yikes, the third parties got to win their lawsuit because they claim that it's just a two-party duopoly that shuts out any other voices. Well, uh, Josh and Toby, I need you to go work with uh, Richie's people, the Republicans, to make sure that uh, this lawsuit gets changed and that it's just a two-party voice. Uh, oligarchy, you know, thing. It's like, way, way to prove the third party's point, everyone. <laughs> yes, perhaps. Perhaps in trying to, like, shift this issue around, you shouldn't just be basically, like, agreeing with the basis of their complaint. Right, and going, okay, well, let's go work with the Republicans to make sure this thing stays two-party only. All right, everyone, good work. Jesus. Good work. We, fig- we figured it out, everyone. Like, I don't know. And again, it's just this very structuralist nebulous perspective on power that drives me fucking crazy because what what good is the structure if you don't accomplish your nominal goals right and i could just picture in a different version of this episode someone like sam or josh or someone making a really impassioned speech for no everyone deserves to have a voice at the table and we should have a great debate with them and and prove their ideas wrong in the marketplace of ideas or something like that but they don't even go have the like decency to to have that kind of moment and they just go no nah, let's just work work with republicans to keep them <laughs> fucking squashed yeah. <laughs> well i think you're absolutely right it's like any other you could you could bend this or see this being bent to that purpose in a different scenario where it's not threatening the way that they want. Right. 
Like, imagine if it's, you know, pre-West Wing and they're trying to struggle to get, like, candidate Bartlett into a debate where he's, like, the fourth polling candidate and the poll threshold says he doesn't make it. And I could see in a really impassioned speech for, here's why you need to let the little guy into the debate coming from the exact same people who are now saying, let's work with the Republicans yeah. to keep the little guy <laughs> fucking out of that debate. Yeah, fuck these people. <laughs> like, uh... <laughs> So let's take a quick break there, and um, when we come back, we'll discuss some of the other subplots in this episode. So kind of the through arc that goes through this episode is, again, the, the reconciliation of the administration's approach to uh, the Sharif assassination that they carried out. And now are, um, let's, shall we say, scrambling to deal with the fallout yes. from it. Um, so the they realize after a while that it's like we are going to be held legally liable if we do the correct not world war three option of on yeah this. yeah uh basically because yeah the then the world war three option would be uh defend israel as yes. yeah as fitzwalls <laughs> puts it so the yeah they they bring in this lawyer uh named jordan i don't know what her last name is but um she's you know she's set up in one of the the ultimate credential checks uh, to be the the foremost uh, uh, you know international law person in in America basically. Well, so uh, the thing we know Jordan from before because correct. she was that's it that's right. Um, she was Leo's lawyer during uh, when the he was during right the during the MS hearings. That's yeah. exactly yep. it. I forgot yep. that we. we I actually totally forgot about that, so thank you for reminding me. So yeah, so they bring Jordan back in is what I should say. But then they, you know, everything Leo does with her in the sit room feels like a first character introduction. So I guess yeah. that's what threw me. So he brings her into the sit room. He's like, "Oh, I just want a quiet place where we can talk." In actuality, he's showing off here because they're trying to like work the romance angle between Leo and Jordan a little. Mm -hmm. um, which they had played up a little during the testimony during the MS thing where he was kind of like playful and flirt flirty with her a little. Um, so now he's, he's going harder on that. And so to try to impress her, he pulls up like a, a first strike nuclear attack scenario uh, with her hometown on the map to see if it gets nuked from a, and I love this little detail, it's a combo first strike from both North Korea and Beijing. I love the idea that it, in the West Wing world, China nuking America is a credible threat. <laughs> Completely bizarro circumstances. What in the like, actual okay. fuck? Like, they are so dependent on us. Like, are you kidding me? Now, North Korea, you could say, fine, whatever. You know, they're crazy. And in some scenario where they got ICBMs, yeah, maybe they alone nuke America. But China is not joining in in any way, shape, or form. Like, yeah, like, the, the two of them together is the... Like, I can see where maybe China what, wants to. One or to, the like, other, sure. Yeah. <laughs> but the idea of a, a tag team... China, North Korea, nuclear attack. But anyway, Lincoln, Nebraska totally gets hit. So bye-bye, Jordan's hometown. Yeah, sorry, Jordan's hometown. <laughs> Rip. Uh, anyway, 
the uh, the next thing Leo does then is have uh, her like her rec- public record, I guess, brought up or you know what her FBI kind of like file. her yeah, it's her yeah. dossier and like yeah. her CV. Yeah, and it's just you know, oh wow, look at all these things you you know you helped this Cuban baseball player get citizenship and and you did all this international law stuff and you seem pretty pretty smart about international law, Miss Jordan. So I got a heck of a conundrum here for you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and he just sort of lays out like he's like, okay, so Kumar is making up phony evidence that Israel assassinated Sharif. We know the evidence is phony. And Jordan jumps to the obvious question of, how do you know the evidence is phony? And Leo has to basically spell out, we know it's phony. Because, uh... Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and then, of course, Jordan's reaction is like, why in the fuck did you tell me this? (laughs) Which, Which is funny, because that's Leo's reaction way back when, when his Vietnam mate told him that he bombed a civilian target. Or whatever. And he was like, why couldn't you just, like, let me die, not knowing that information and now here he is dumping that same burden onto someone else so i I, I just thought of that connection it's a good it's a good bit of parallel because you know we saw leo suffer through this earlier in the show yeah he flipped the fuck out and jordan's reaction is relatively minimal even though she should be even more shocked in my opinion but yeah, she is rightly like, why the fuck did you tell me this? And he's like, well, you're my attorney, and it's attorney-client privilege, so don't tell anyone. Well, <laughs> and, and she's it's... like, fuck, fuck you. <laughs> yeah, seriously, you brought brought me here to show off and and pseudo flirt with me, and now you're basically like roping me in on a conspiracy, uh, 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 an assassination conspiracy, yeah. <laughs> and and telling uh, and asking me how do I get out? How do I get you out of it legally? Um, uh, and also, this is, doesn't come up ever in the episode, but I just want to bring up that they also killed Sharif's bodyguards, whose only crime was doing their job. Like, these poor guys, like, they didn't, you know, they didn't try to bomb San Francisco. They, they just had yeah. the un- unfortunate luck of standing next to Sharif when we decided Sharif ne- needed to die. Yeah, and, like, so, the, not that it would make too much of a difference, but this isn't, a, like, a, the assassination of a government official, it's the murder like the extrajudicial murder of three other people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's super fucked. So basically Jordan comes out with the logical conclusion of like, well, there's no defense for what you're doing. You're you're in completely uncharted international law waters here. Uh, and the and the conclusion ends up being like, okay, well, this will have to we'll have to do more research and, and figure out something. And uh again, slight credit where credit is due. At least the show is having consequences act happen for actions taken in previous episodes when normally they would have been forgotten about well i think they are also taking big advantage of john amos in this episode because it's great to see to have fitz wallace weighing in on this stuff even though even though when we conspired to murder kumar he basically shows his ass as like the most bloodthirsty warhawk in right. the entire fucking show. Right, but <laughs> now now that it's done, he's a lot more level-headed about everything. Um, so yeah, it appears that it definitely got some bloodlust out of him, I guess. <laughs> so good good for Fitz Wallace. He, he busted um, his war nut, and now he's good. <laughs> so while, while they're still working on the legal aspect of, of how to deal with it, uh, him and Bartlett and Leo meet in the uh, Oval Office to talk about more immediate actions they could take. And... This 
this is where it, it gets, uh, as the intro clip to the episode says, quite ridiculous. <laughs> uh, as the plan ends up being, okay, we're going to spin some stories that uh, he, he actually went back to, like, Libya or something, and he's visiting a cousin, and uh, if necessary, we'll, we'll even create a body double uh, and have him go walk around Libya to get photographed and shit by the media. And we'll, and we'll leak some stories to foreign media and whatnot saying that, uh, oh no, uh, you know, Sharif is totally alive and just chilling in Libya. And therefore, this shit that Kumar's talking about makes zero fucking sense. Because <laughs> how could he be dead if he's alive in Libya? <laughs> And and thank God you registered the like the full machination of what they are planning because like my brain just tuned out in the middle of this episode entirely. I was like, oh, yeah. they're talking. That's about why I had to watch it something. twice. <laughs> yeah. And but but I just they the words that they use to describe this. They he says specifically like I want justice to be done. I think at some mm-hmm. point it's like what what fucking justice. The justice is you going to the Hague, Mr. President. Like, Like, dude, you are now actively avoiding justice. Like, you are developing a scheme to avoid justice. Yeah, and Fitz Wallace totally does bring up that, like, we should all prepare for our eventual Hague trials. Yeah, trials. (laughs) At one point. So, like, at least Fitz Wallace realizes the scope of, of what's going down. Yeah, he, he's definitely the most level-headed throughout all of this, but and of course this is the one who realizes how ridiculous everything is about to get. Yeah. So we we don't know if this play will end up working on or not. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure more Sharif stuff is going to come up in future episodes. I don't recall specifically, but we'll be interested to uh, to discuss it when it does. Yeah. Uh, the other f- more comedy, uh, funny subplot I wanted to talk about. Um, before we break for this segment, is the stuff that goes on with Debbie Fitterer, a.k.a. Lily Tomlin, uh, who is so delightful that whenever she's on screen, I'm just watching her and yeah. watching her reactions and stuff, and it's it's the most engaging the show has been in quite some time for me, just to watch her kind of, like, make faces and look at people, even when she's not talking. <laughs> and and it's, it's very interesting that it is, because I do the same thing with um, Amy Gardner and with CJ, so it's it's super interesting that the show has put me of a mind to pay attention when the female characters are doing things. And I swear to God, it's in spite of Sorkin's best efforts. Yes, 100%. Because oftentimes <laughs> he has them silent as the men are talking. Um, so yeah, you're, you're definitely right there. So her plot line is that she's going through the security check and onboarding and stuff that she has to go through to be, you know, to be the new Mrs. Landingham. Uh, and she's like, look, I've worked in the White House before. I've gone through the security checks before. And, you know, Sam gets to have his, like, cool guy moment where he's like, you have a crash button on your phone that summons every Secret Service agent to the White House uh, and turns your phone into a live intercom. It's the button you press if they're trying to take the Oval Office <laughs> in some sort of, like, White House down, Olympus has fallen yeah. scenario. <laughs> um so yeah so we get it her job's very very serious and then charlie says uh okay so we had some problems with the answers you put on the on the government question form and she's like well what are you talking about he's like well there's this one question that says are you now or have you ever been a member of a 
an organization that plans to violently overthrow the government. Uh, and you put yes. <laughs> and she's like, oh yeah, so about that. I was, <laughs> I was just trolling the form makers because that's a stupid ass question. And if you really are like a terrorist or whatever, you're not just going to write down yes, yes. To, to get caught by the FBI. It's like the old Carlin bit about like, answering the stupid airport questions like did you pack your bags sir no carrot top packed my bags <laughs> yeah well and they're, they're everywhere and it's just kind of the the perfunctory disclosure it's, thing it's like, you know it's like the job interviews that ask you like is stealing good when you're working <laughs> at like a retail job or whatever and you have to go no stealing bad well there's there's one on the uh standard firearm form that's like have you ever advocated for the overthrow of the government <laughs> it's like, uh, wow yeah so she she trolled the form by by answering stupid questions and then at one at one point uh she said something like so there was some sort of arsenic in water scandal going down in some foreign country, and she said something along the lines of, well, let's put some arsenic in President Bartlett's water and see if he delegates the responsibility to the World Bank then. Um, <laughs> which is great, which is a great little, like, political it's, fucking jab. It's, it's and straight out of, like, it's it's Obama and Flint. It's 100%. Carters. It's pre it's prescient. It's fucking Cassandra-esque in its predictive power. Uh, it's actually incredible. But, and then, but then Charlie flips the fuck out. He's like, I was next to the president when he was getting shot at by, by extremists, Debbie. Your jokes are somehow related to that in some way. Like, you can't joke about killing the president even though you didn't really because somebody else tried to kill the president or something. Even though and she was just saying hypothetically, what if someone put arsenic in his water? Which how of do course, you think he would react? Yeah, which is... <laughs> She's not even saying, let's kill him. Let's just see if he would take it more seriously if it was in his own backyard. That's yeah, all no she's shit. saying, uh, which is, of course, a valid and great point. So anyway, th this all ends up kind of being water under the bridge because Bar uh, she's, you know, she's like, okay, fine. So I fucked up on the form. You know, I didn't actually want this job before when you first came to me, but now I really do. You know, I've, I've seen the people here and I really want the job, Charlie. So what do I have to do? And Charlie doesn't answer on screen, but it's clear his answer is, well, M President Bartlett has to decide. And so at the end of the episode, Bartlett invites her into the Oval Office to talk about it. And he's, and he's like, what in the hell? And she explains <laughs> uh, and whatnot. And then so and Bartlett decides, all right, fine, you got the job. You blew me away. And she's like. Uh, how sir and uh he, he decided <laughs> oh my god this is so stupid here it he, comes he he's like let's put some arsenic in president bartlett's water glass and see how he reacts then president bartlett you you refer to me and the office with respect you're a class act and, and and that's the reason she gets to keep like, the job. Like you just you hear the patriotic swell of music in the background, and like but, a thousand eagles pop a boner and salute the flag. Oh my it's god! Like, it's like you decorumed <laughs> enough. Basically, is the is the answer. You played by the rules of decorum, and you know what? That's what matters more than anything else. To be fair, in a very funny moment on his way out the door, he does call her a whack job. Yes, <laughs> and I, I appreciate that. And then we get another great moment of Lily Tomlin celebrating in glee realizing she has the job so overall it's a very funny subplot but you know charlie's like aggressiveness comes out of nowhere and is not really related to anything but the end result is we have our new mrs landingham and it's lily tomlin yay yay and she's just a goddamn delight so i'm 
in favor of anything that gets Lily Tomlin more time on the show. For sure. Okay, so let's take another quick break, and then we'll come back, and we'll talk about the uh, the final subplot, <laughs> Rock the Vote! Ooh. So the final thing that happens in this episode is many of our mains go and attend a Rock the Vote concert event somewhere. It looks like it's a House of Blues. Yeah, probably. That's what, the, that's what one it looks like partners. to me. Sure. Uh, we'll assume it's the, one of the DC ones or it's relatively close by, maybe Baltimore or something like that. Uh, but so they all go there and uh, Bare Naked Ladies are playing, which just transports me right back to high school. Yep. So <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for that nostalgia hit show. Um and, um, you know, I don't know how many people are actually familiar with Rock the Vote. It was, uh, it was a 90s slash early aughts movement to, uh, to try to get the youth more interested in voting um, by, by doing these sort of, like, concert events and stuff like that where they also have, like, voter registration forms available and they talk about politics, like, a little. Not a lot, <laughs> but, you know, it's mostly just concerts. Um, and then, then they scold you to try to vote. And so CJ, uh, is the one up on stage, um, after, after the performances go on and she talks about how, you know, she gives all this BS statistics about how the youth don't vote and, you know, the youth need to vote and that decisions are made by those who show up. And, and then she goes on this irritating spiel where she's like, do you think politics don't matter to you? Well, how many of you have student loans? How many of you want to go to college? How many of you want good jobs? How many of you want clearing air and water? And that all sounds great and whatever, but what the fuck is the Bartlett's plan, <laughs> administration's plan for any of that stuff? And, like, how does, I mean, especially these days, like, how does voting get you that? Get you that especially yeah. at, like, a federal level yeah like yeah <laughs> i just and and looking at this oh my god no way okay never mind um so i just did i did some research before the show like this is in the most cynical of takes it was founded by a record executive rock the vote ah! so ah, ah! you know there is it was just an excuse to sell more albums ex exactly and like <laughs> of course they, they basically they were big until the election of 2004 when they basically just like everything fucked up because I mean, can you imagine like you got <laughs> GW in office and we can't get him out? Like, and you can't because they picked the fucking worst possible like, candidate to run against him. Yeah. And honestly, like their emphasis early on, on like, you know, rock, it's basically, it's a voter registration drive and like right. the, it's fucking impossible. And they don't tell you who to vote for. Yeah. Which is, of course, my big problem with all these. Vote. Just vote. You know, if they try to take away your voice, just vote. You, you don't even saying vote left or vote Democrats or whatever. Like, tell people who to vote for. And I think that is the most dated part of it. Is, Not that it'll get anything done, but... <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's the fact that it's so 
blinkered to be like, I'm going to talk to you as if a vote for either party is equally viable and mm-hmm. and and I guess respectable within the discourse when I mean frankly both parties are are full of fucking neoliberal ghouls but frankly like the Republican party is a fucking neo-fascist theocracy type of right. party and so like I will give the Dems slight praise in that at least they are not as bad as the Republicans, and, you know, and, <laughs> damning with the faintest yes. of praise. And this concept is just so dated because, like, well, all right, we're more polarized now than ever, than ever before, and we should be because you know, you know the whole th- as we properly should be, absolutely. And that's why this is sort if of I- just like, oh, this is an uh, like a, a relic. Of an age where nominally, you know, because like, let's be clear, like Newt, before Newt Gingrich took over, the Republican Party was basically, you know, within the same Overton window spectrum as the Democratic Party uh, is today. As the, as the current Democratic Party, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, like H.W. Bush would be no different from Obama, yeah. effectively, in terms of how they govern and, and what policies they pursue. And yeah, precisely. So... Yeah, it, just the the immense sort of hypocrisy of of having CJ stand up there and saying, "No, you know, we we'll we'll fight for all these youth focused issues, but only if you vote for us." And it's like, "No, it's the other way around. You have to give them something to vote for, then they will vote for you." And it's also within the context of she's saying this, she is the administration's mouthpiece and she's on stage at this concert and she cannot bring herself to say Vote for us. Vote for Bartlett. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're allowed to. You yeah, can, you, yeah. you know, there's, you're allowed to. She's not on White House property or whatever the stupid rule is where, like, you can't electioneer from inside the White House. Like, she's allowed to say vote for Bartlett uh, and just doesn't want to. I, yeah. So the reason, it's, anyway, like, the reason that we end up as with this as, like, the final montage, in addition to sort of, like, your our, our cross promotion here, like our product promotion of Rock the Vote. Yeah. Um, is that it brings back Amy Gardner into the show's yes. orbit after yep. she sh- a couple she episodes shows up. Of, of absence. Right. After, yeah, a couple episodes of her and big, her and Josh's big dust up, break up, kind of blow up thing. Yep. Uh, yeah. She, she strolls back into the event. Uh, and Josh is immediately like, oh my God, Amy's here. And like, runs off after her. Um, they, they have a talk about everything that's gone on since then, you know, the bombing, the, you know, him being lost in America with Toby and, and Donna mm. for 20 hours and how they got back and all that. They sort of catch up. Uh, Amy says under her breath that she misses him. Josh doesn't quite pick up on it right away. There, there's some romantic tension played at. Uh, and then before they can, you know, really unpack the romantic tension and that, you know, there's possibly a chance of them getting back together, uh, the fact that she is now working for Stackhouse comes up. Uh, and, of course, they're having the trouble with Stackhouse with the whole debate thing. So he immediately shifts Josh back to angry work mode and he just starts tearing into her for like, I can't believe you work with Stackhouse, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and this is why Josh will never be happy. Well, it's because she's going to be she's going to be running his campaign like. If, right. if he jumps in the race, she's got, frankly, an incredibly lucrative and opportunistic job that she would be considering taking. And of course, because again, we cannot go against the White House's presumption of infallibility. Josh's, uh, and victory. And- <laughs> Josh's brain like breaks. It's like, but right. you can't do that. <laughs> right. But you're working with the enemy now. 
like, you know, and just it completely blows the shot that he totally had of, of actually getting back with her. Um, so good job, Josh. And then uh, so she, they split off and then Josh goes to talk to Toby. And so throughout the episode before this, they had come up with the idea uh, based on their conversation with the guy in the bar at in Indiana about how, you know, it, it's good that it's hard to put my daughter through college, but it should just be just a little easier. <laughs> Not all the way easier, just a little. Uh, so they finally, they put their two heads together, uh, and, well, they sort of actually independently each came to the conclusion, but they each heard a story about uh, executive bonuses being tax-deductible or something like that, and that got both their heads going in the line of, like, what if we made college tuition tax-deductible? And so um, Toby goes through some some spitball numbers here. I actually want you to put the clip in, if you don't mind. Sure. Call twice at 55,000. Matt Kelly's in the 27.5% bracket. Let's assume he takes the standard deductions and let's forget for a moment mortgage payments. What's his tax liability? 13,300. Tuition at Notre Dame is 25,850. Let's throw in Books, room, and board, and it's $34,000. Saying the books are tax deductible too, right? Personally, I think the beer should be tax deductible, but we'll have to fight another day. So with one kid in college, Matt Kelly's tax liability just dropped from 13300 to 3800 We can get this done. It'll be a good day's work. Let's take it to CJ when she gets off. And so, <laughs> first off, I love the, the they just cross over the fact that $34,000 for tuition is still being paid every single year by this by this hypothetical, you know, dad making $55,000 a yeah. year. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I don't know where he's getting that money, but don't worry, he's got it. He's got it somewhere, I yeah, guess. Yeah, we just presume but, he'll have access to it. But don't worry, the fact that he's paying 34000 in tuition will be offset by the fact that we reduced his li- his tax liability by $10,000, only leaving him with a net balance of $24,000 to cover. Well, and, like, the th- with, tax deduct- with tax deductible, he has still paid that money, but... Right, he, c- he just gets it. He just gets a refund. He, and he doesn't even get all of the money back. He gets right. the amount of money that he would have had to pay on taxes if he had it still. Right. So it's like, exactly. So it's like, on, for an average American, it's like 24% of that money. Yeah. Now he gets Yeah, back. exactly. <laughs> so it's, it's the stupidest, most neoliberal fucking policy idea I've ever heard of. The idea of free college tuition doesn't even come up at all. Uh, you know, like the, uh, you know, th- this is this is taking place in a universe where other other countries have been doing free college tuition for decades yeah. and decades, and we are still the richest country in the world and everything. All right, I don't need to go off on a whole <laughs> rant about it. You get you get why this is bad, folks. But this this is their big plan. This is their big idea. This is the big policy that they're really gonna push on. For, for this election to uh, to win back the common man, you know, the mats who are making $55,000. And then the actual episode ends on Toby calling up the actual Matt guy to be like, hey, man, we're, you know, maybe, maybe if a year from now, if we have the votes, you might get a $10,000 tax deductible relief on your daughter's $34,000 a year college tuition to Notre Dame. <laughs> Hey, hey, dude! Just wanted to let you know we're commissioning a study into publishing a 
you know, a calculation matrix of a proposition for a tax deduction that might make it through committee. Like, f- fuck. Uh, and s- spoilers, by the way, I'm a- almost 100% sure that they do not even pass this policy <laughs> at any at any point in the show, even after they win re-election on what is supposed to be like a huge sweeping mandate. Uh, and they, in theory, have all the political capital in the world to pass it. They still will not pass it. Yeah. Yay, Yay the, the West, West Wing. Wing. <laughs> uh, so that that about does it. Let's take a one final break here, and then we'll come back and wrap up. Baby, just sing about the does it for this episode of the worst wing uh thanks for joining us as always the next episode we're going to be discussing is entitled the red mass uh which deals with the president um taking on uh the decision to green light a uh, police action against the bombers the pipe bombers from 20 hours in america they've finally been found uh as well as some other subplots going on with uh leo uh meeting with an israeli official uh, to talk about the Sharif stuff, as well as Amy deal- dealing with her Senator Stackhouse stuff uh, in a fight against the White House. So uh, that should all be interesting to talk about um, when we get to that. I think that stands in stark contrast. I just want to wrap up with saying that this episode, like, I I swear to God, it was so boring, I stopped paying attention the whole it time. It sucked. It sucked. It was, re- it was real bad. The Lily Tomlin stuff is the only redeeming <laughs> thing that keeps it even keeps my eyes on the screen like i said i had to rewatch it a second time and that was the only reason i can remember anything about it in particular because after the first watching and waiting like three days i had forgotten basically every detail about the episode well and it stands in such stark contrast to 20 hours in america which frankly like Mm -hmm. that's the episode i remember the most and frankly like that i enjoyed one of the most throughout the entire series yeah, it was so weird to go from, like, two episodes that were such a good, like, shake-up of the formula and, and really injected a lot of, like, originality and creativity into the show, and then suddenly to be, like, yanked back yeah. to that old formula <laughs> again, where the, where there's no originality or creativity, and we're back to, like, our three subplots with maybe a funny D-plot, uh, and it all takes place in the White House, and it's all boring as hell. Yep. So anyway, uh, again, thank you for listening. Uh, We'll see you on the next episode. And uh, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, um, you can post them in our thread. Uh, You can email the show at theworstwing69 at (laughs) gmail.com. Nice. Nice. And we will see you next time for another episode of The Worst Wing. All right. Bye-bye. So love me, love me, love me